I kind of feel like we talk about a lot of, you know, depressing and alarming things on this show. We're not we're not a happy bunch, are we? They call it the dismal science for a reason, though. Economics. <laughs> they do. They do. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the inner workings of the global economy. I'm Tori Stowell, an economics reporter for Bloomberg News, and I'm recording today out of our DC newsroom. And I'm joined by my co-host, Aki Ito, our Benchmark editor in San Francisco. Hey, Aki. Hey, Tori. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Although, I don't know, today's topic is on the morbid side, I would say. I kind of feel like we talk about a lot of depressing and alarming things on this show. We're not a happy bunch, are we? They call it the dismal science for a reason, though. Economics. <laughs> they do. They do. Well, you know, I promise to all our listeners, I promise that the show, however depressing and alarming it's going to be, it's also going to be totally interesting and riveting, too. Let's dig in. So the National Center of Health Statistics came out with a report recently that looked at U.S. suicide rates for different races and ages from 1999 to 2014, so the last 15 years or so. And all around, it was a pretty bleak picture. Right. So the report showed that suicide rates age-adjusted in America was gosh, 24% higher in 2014 than it was in 1999. Uh, Suicides went up for men and for women in every single age group under 75. And during that time frame, the suicide rate for white females ages 45 to 64 rose 80% and was three to four times higher than for females in other racial and ethnic groups. In fact, you know, here... Black males, actually, were the only racial and ethnic group of either sex to have a lower suicide rate in 2014 compared to 1999. So what does this all have to do with economics? For that, we're going to need an economist. With us is Anne Case, a professor of economics and public affairs at Princeton. She's done some amazing work on the rise of both mortality and morbidity among white Americans in the 21st century. And you actually might remember her co-author on this work from one of our very first episodes. Uh, His name's Angus Deaton. He is not only the winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize for Economics, but is also Anne's husband. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be with you. So Anne, We talked about suicides a little bit earlier in the show, but your work dealt with more than just that, just looking at uh, morbidity and mortality broadly in midlife for white Americans. Could you just boil your research down to a sentence or two? What was the gist of what you and Angus found? When we looked both at morbidity and mortality, the mortality increases that we saw among people in midlife, white, non-Hispanics in midlife, were being driven by what we call deaths of despair. So drug overdose, suicide, alcohol-related liver deaths. And underneath that layer of mortality, we found a lot of what we call morbidity. So poor health among whites in middle age, poor mental health, a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty with activities of daily living, reports that they're unable to work, And so when you put that together, it paints a picture of some despair among especially working class whites in America. And I think what was 
really striking about your research was that that wasn't always the case, that these mortality rates, they were going down for white Americans until the late 90s. And then after that, they started ticking back up. That isn't what we saw in other advanced countries in Europe, right? That's exactly right, that in the U.S., after almost a century of uninterrupted progress when it came to uh, lower mortality rates, both among people in middle age and in older ages, suddenly in the late 1990s, we saw that kind of progress stop dead and for people in some age groups actually begin to reverse and go in the wrong direction altogether. Whereas in Name Your Favorite European Country, mortality rates in middle age continue to fall at about 2% a year, which is what was happening in the U.S. until the late 1990s. So that is really one of the underlying questions. Why did the U.S. leave the herd? Right. What made us different? And have you found the answer to that question? We are hard at work. We're back (laughs) in the weeds right now looking for answers. Of course, everyone we talk to and every politician you hear knows the answer. (laughs) But uh, What do they say it is? Uh, It depends on who's doing the talking. So it can be anything from uh, the fact that jobs that were good jobs in the U.S. left the country. They were sent, say, to Cambodia or to Vietnam. It could be some uh, politicians think that it's Obamacare backfiring on itself, although this crisis began way before the Obama administration. Uh, Some people think it's just that uh, America's not great anymore and that once America's great again, people will uh, stop killing themselves in such large numbers, slowly uh, with drugs and alcohol or quickly with a gun. So, Anne, can you walk us through, I guess, the health side of this then? What is leading people to, uh, I guess, use more drugs or to kill themselves? Is it mental illness? Is it, What sort of health factors, I guess, are behind this increase in mortality and morbidity with middle-aged whites? Well, Tori, at this point, it's really speculation. But on the morbidity side, when things that we can actually measure, it certainly is the case that people's mental health has suffered in the last 15 years. So every year, the National Health Interview Survey asks a very large nationally representative group of people about their mental health, and um, they, they, they score the answers. And year on year, from 1999 through 2014, the scores have gotten worse on average for people in whites in middle age. People's reports of, say, sciatica, of chronic joint pain, of neck pain, of face pain, all of those markers of pain have have increased as well. And when asked about activities of daily living, a significantly higher number report that they have difficulty socializing with friends. Now, we know pain and social isolation are both triggers for suicide, for example, And those things have uh, risen um, in tandem over the last 15 years. Now, what's under that? That's what we're at work trying to unearth. Is it the case that we are just much more socially isolated and that puts people at risk? I mean, that might be something that's different between the U.S. and, say, our sister countries in Europe. And we don't know the role yet that is played by stronger social safety nets, which the Europeans, the Canadians, the Australians have relative to the U.S. Uh, We don't know the role yet of having access universally to health care. 
those are the roles that those play still really need to be investigated. And then a different avenue is to look at what's happened to the American employment patterns. Since this is a crisis, it's really hit people with a high school degree or less. And those are people in the U.S. who used to be able to get, with a high school degree, a good job, a job with on-the-job training, which may be very important, a job where they could move up with that training, and that those jobs are gone. Those jobs aren't coming back. Those jobs would have had benefits. Those jobs would have had health care. And it may not just only be the loss of those jobs that have left the country, but when, say, a manufacturing center closes down, the local tax base implodes, the local schools can't support themselves as well. So it may be that working class people look at their children and think that their children are not going to have the same kind of um, promising avenues that they themselves thought they might have. So there may be an intergenerational part of this as well, of people not knowing whether or not the future looks any brighter for their own children. And that's... I mean, that's so fascinating. One, on your first point, that we could talk about social isolation in an age where things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these new things are supposed to be bringing us closer to people and helping uh, connect us to people all over the world. And so I just think it's fascinating that isolation is still an issue, perhaps. I think it really is an issue, even in the age of Facebook, we know that divorce rates may have something to do with this. If uh, if people are divorcing at higher rates, then they may spend more time alone. That's still to be investigated. It's also possible that people may look at each other's Facebook pages where they see, here I am on my fabulous vacation and my life is fabulous, whereas underneath that, there may be a much bigger story. Not all of it looks as bright and sunny as is portrayed on Facebook. Right. And so whether these people feel socially isolated or whether they feel like they lost a sense of purpose in their lives um, or are financially struggling because they lost their job, you know, the idea is that maybe they're turning to uh, alcohol or drugs in their despair and they end up dying a premature death, right? Well, that is that is certainly one of the stories that one can tell. Now, whether or not that those are really the underlying drivers, we, we have a lot of work to do looking at small geographic area by small geographic area in the U.S. to try to see whether or not the data are consistent with that story. And we should know more, a lot more about that once we actually do the work. And so now we're actually in the process of doing the work, and that's going to take some time. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have much more to talk about, including why, and this is a question I'm particularly interested in, why aren't we seeing similar trends in non-white communities? So we're going to talk a little bit about that and uh, hopefully more about some of these economic reasons behind uh, the increases that we're seeing after this break.
So maybe zooming out a little bit uh, before we kind of go into the why and the consequences a little bit more, this is an amazing statistic for our listeners. So if mortality rates for white Americans continued to decline the way that they were up to the late 90s, half a million deaths could have been avoided between 1999 and 2013 almost 500,000. So that's basically equivalent to the number of Americans who've died from AIDS. Whatever is causing this, and isn't it fair to call this an epidemic? Depends on how you want to use the word epidemic. It certainly is something that's widespread. In every state in middle age, on average, people in whites in middle age are reporting themselves in worse health than they did 15 years ago. In all census regions, the suicide rates are up. In all, all census regions, the, the reports of social isolation are up. So it, it is certainly happening throughout the country. So if you want to call it an epidemic uh, using that as, as your definition, then it is kind of a very quiet epidemic. And actually, the, the 500,000 number... We want to back off of that a little bit because some of those um, some of those deaths are probably due to the fact that it took women longer to stop smoking than it took men. Women took it up later, and they stopped later. So in the U.S., some of those uh, deaths are actually probably due to cancer and heart disease related to cigarette smoking that's still working its way out. But if you just sum the numbers of people who died in this century, in the new century, from suicide, from drug overdose, from alcohol-related liver mortality. If the rates of those deaths had stayed at what they had been, say, in 1990, then in the period between 2000 and 2014, about 300,000 people aged 35 to 59 would not have died of these deaths of despair. So it's the same order of magnitude as the number of people who died and have died to date in the AIDS crisis in the U.S., a little, a little bit lower, but same order of magnitude, although the AIDS crisis got a lot of attention, whereas this really has been a very quiet, if you want to call it epidemic, a very quiet epidemic. And so far our discussion has been about white middle-aged Americans. Why aren't we seeing... Um, I guess, problems or increases in mortality and morbidity at the same magnitude for other races? Uh, That is a terrific question. Happily, the mortality rates for um, African Americans in middle age is falling even quicker than it is among our European uh, counterparts. And mortality rates for Hispanics is falling at exactly the same rate as our European counterparts. So it's about 2.6% per year for blacks and about 2% a year for Hispanics. And why is it the case that this uh, big cloud has not landed on their heads? So we we can, again, we can speculate. Uh, At this point, we don't have any firm answers Part of the drug overdoses come from the availability of prescription opioids, which uh, started in the mid-1990s and gained speed and gained speed with the introduction of drugs like OxyContin. 
And there's a small literature that suggests that African Americans were discriminated against. If they presented with the same level of pain, doctors were less likely to prescribe them heavy-duty opioids than they would be if a white presented with the same level of pain. Wow. So, so while that kind of discrimination, there's no room for that kind of discrimination. But at the same time, that may be one of the explanations for why the opioid part of this did not land on the heads of African Americans. It's also the case that pharmacies in the inner cities Uh, Some of them don't want to actually stock opioids because it makes them a target for people to come and uh, steal the opioids, which in some communities have actually become a a currency of sorts, that you can actually trade things for drugs as if the drugs are money. We think of the opioids, we think, we here being Angus Deaton, my co-author and I, as being one of the proximate causes for this epidemic. But it's just a proximate cause. Like, what causes people to reach for those drugs? They're available, but they're available in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. Why is it that in the U.S. it's really become such a killer? And why has it become such a killer for whites? We don't really have an answer. So African-Americans and Hispanics, are they reporting the, I guess, the same amount of pain or the the similar increases in pain, or is that different as well? So there's been no decrease, no decline in uh, self-reported health among um, African-Americans. There has been a small increase in reports of pain, uh, not as large as seen in the um, white non-Hispanic community, but no, but but certainly there has been an increase. But there, uh, the deaths of despair for African Americans, meaning drugs, suicide, alcohol, have been falling for people in their 30s. It's been constant for people in their 40s, into their early 50s. So that we don't see the same dramatic increase that we've been seeing from age 30 to age 59 in the white community. Wow. And and if I understand if I understood the data correctly in your in your study, Hispanic and black Americans actually are less likely to die at middle age than white people are at this point. Is that right? No, no. So the okay. the mortality rates for African Americans is still higher than mm-hmm. um, it is for white non-Hispanics. Hispanics actually have lower mortality rates than um, than much wealthier white non-Hispanics. Um, that's another puzzle for demographers, uh, why it is that it's called the Hispanic paradox, why it is that Hispanics actually do have much better reported health and uh, have lower mortality rates and higher life expectancy rates than whites. But among African Americans, while there's been real progress, uh, there is still a gap between black and white mortality with blacks having higher mortality than whites. But it has been falling, and the gap has been closing. Unfortunately, part of the gap closing has come from the fact that white mortality rates have increased. Hmm. I mean, you want everybody to get to the frontier. You don't want the gap to close because, you know, whites are are doing worse than they had been doing. You want to see everybody doing better. Right, right. You know, let's let's say come November, whoever becomes the president, uh, she or, or he calls you up and says, 
look, I've seen your paper. There's a clear crisis among middle-aged white Americans right now. What should I do? What would your policy advice be? That is such that is such a multi-layered question. And until we really find our way back out of the weeds and have a better sense of how much of this is about mm. job loss, how much of this is about social connection, it's it would be hard for me. And of course, I'm an academic, so it's hard for me to say I have the answer and this is what it is and this is what your policy should look like. Mm-hmm. But I think ec- ec- economists in general are like, true believers in education. And one of the things that happened but between the late 1970s and today is that the premium in the labor market for getting a college degree went from about 25% higher pay for people with a college degree to something like 40% above what people with a high school degree could earn. So part of these people in middle age now came of age in the late 1970s and were making decisions about the course of their lives before they had any reason to understand that there was going to be this wedge that was going to be driven between their earnings and the earnings of people who went on to get more education. Mm-hmm. So I I think also watching the quality of public schools erode is very bad for uh, the morale of people in, uh, throughout the country. And so I think actually uh, shoring up our schools would be a long-run approach to this problem, a short-run answer is going to be as much as there's pushback against it. I'm with uh, the CDC in, in saying that doctors should probably have to have some education uh, specific to prescribing these really heavy-duty opioids. The AMA is against it, but I think that Given that we are currently prescribing enough prescription painkillers to medicate every adult American around the clock for a month, we are prescribing enough that we probably need to make sure we know what we're doing. Mm, yeah. It's it's amazing to hear you talk about this because it sounds like these these economic factors that are increasing white middle age mortality and morbidity are are the same ones that are fueling a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing in this election season. So um, it's I think this is a really important trend to keep an eye on in terms for for I guess that and momentum there as well. Yeah, there was a really interesting article in the Washington Post. Uh, during this primary season where they took states and broke the states down into their counties and looked at the primary results and saw a really clear pattern that in the counties where the death rates in middle age were higher, uh, the Trump votes were much stronger. Wow. So I thought that was um, quite, quite interesting. I think both on the on the right with Donald Trump and on the left with Bernie Sanders, uh, there is a, a real sense of a community that feels like they haven't been heard for a very long time. And part of that comes out in the, these data on how they're reporting their health and on mortality. Wow, that's a lot to think about. Um, 
and maybe to avoid ending on such a dark note, um, maybe I can ask a, a lighter question to wrap this all up. What's it? There are a lot of economists, I think, uh, who where the wife and the husband work together on research. What's it like to do research with your husband? <laughs> it's uh, it's terrific. I mean, it's <laughs> not that we don't have enough to talk about without talking about work, but it's really nice to, to work with someone who shares the same kind of passion for the work that I have. So I'm just, I'm lucky enough also uh, to be married to someone who just won the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which has had the effect of sprinkling fairy dust on our lives. And um, that has been uh, a really terrific experience. So... Um, I, it's not for everybody. I think for some people, it's really nice to be able to leave things at the office. Uh, we never leave things at the office, uh, <laughs> which certainly, you know, you can you can imagine the downsides of that. But it's also incredibly exciting to just always feel like there we have at any point we could be saying, oh, I have this idea about what this might be and then share it and then, you know, uh, think about ways to dig into it. Yeah, that's terrific. <laughs> Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. It was it was great speaking with you. Really my pleasure. Thanks a lot. And thanks to you all for listening. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter at AkiIto7 and at Tori Stillwell. And for our listeners who aren't on Twitter, you can also email our producer, Alec, at uh, amccabe, M-C-C-A-B-E, at Bloomberg.net. See you next week. 